Let's pray together. Father, thankful for the music this morning that is to your honor. And um, Lord, we are people that um, are waiting. We have waited before and we wait again, Lord. You have come in your first advent, and we're going to talk about that this morning. We also look forward to when you come again and you make all things right. But until then, we know that the only place we're going to find rest is in you, and I pray your word would convince us of that again this morning and convince us that um, all of the other places that we have attempted to find security and wholeness, uh, they're ultimately going to let us down. They're going to fail us. It's you, and it's you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 53 is where we are at this morning. Uh, during this time of the year, you'll always he hear people say, it's a Christmas miracle. I don't know where that actually came from. I always thought it was It's a Wonderful Life, but then as I went back, I was trying to like comb through the movie uh, a little bit. Uh, I couldn't find it, so I don't think it's from It's a Wonderful uh, Life. And uh, then I thought maybe it's from The Miracle on 34th Street, but I'm going to tell you a little secret this morning. I've never seen it, okay? Never seen The Miracle on 34th Street. I know to some of you that's blasphemous, but uh, hopefully you'll forgive me. Um, not sure where it came from, but it's definitely something people say all the time during this time of the year. Well, our passage this morning, Isaiah 53, is legitimately a miracle, okay? And for the purpose of today, we'll call it a Christmas miracle. And, and here's why I call it miraculous. The book of Isaiah predates the birth of Christ by 700 years, all right? So just, just take that in for a second, that uh, what we're going to read here in just a moment in Isaiah chapter 53 predates Jesus and his birth by 700 years, not Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. He is eternal, but it predates his birth by 700 years. C.S. Lewis said that a miracle is something that breaks a pattern so expected and established that we hardly consider the possibility that it could be broken. And that is exactly what we have with Isaiah 53. The pattern of the world is that we don't find something out until it happens, or generally right before it happens, or sometimes until after it has happened. But we definitely don't find out 700 years in advance that something is going to happen. Prophecies like Isaiah's defy the natural order of time. Isaiah has 19 different prophecies in his book that are all fulfilled in the, purpose, uh, in the person of Christ who was born seven centuries after Isaiah's ministry. And for many years, here's what skeptics would do. They would accuse the church of going back, changing manuscripts, so that the message of Isaiah would fit with the New Testament message uh, that we have. And, and that way they could point to it and say, look, our book is true, right? The New Testament is true. Uh, Jesus truly is the Messiah. Isaiah said he was the Messiah. So skeptics would say, well, the church changed the book of Isaiah so that it would fit with the New Testament because there's no way that something written 700 years before the New Testament was written, uh, there's no way that it could uh, gel with it that well. Well, in 1947, that theory of the skeptics got shattered because a Bedouin shepherd boy named Muhammad accidentally found some scrolls in a cave near modern-day Jericho. And what he had stumbled upon was the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the largest scroll was the scroll of Isaiah, which contained almost the entirety of Isaiah's 66 chapters. 
Carbon dating placed it around 230 B.C., meaning 230 years before Jesus was even born. And here is what they found when they compared the Dead Sea Scrolls to what we have in our Bibles this morning in the book of Isaiah. They found that nothing had been changed. They found that what we have in our book of Isaiah, in our Bibles, is accurate to what was written on the scrolls. And so the church did not go back and change the book of Isaiah. Jesus actually fulfills these prophecies. The book of Isaiah truly points to the first advent of Christ. And it's all about him. As we read Isaiah 53 this morning, we'll see it's all about him. You cannot deny it. We were in Isaiah just a few weeks ago. I just want to remind you of what's going on in Isaiah's world as he prophesied. In the 150 years before Isaiah, the Assyrian Empire had been rising to power. When Isaiah was still a very young man, the Assyrians came and took a portion of the northern kingdom of Israel into exile. That was 734 B.C. Thirteen years later, the Assyrians took down the capital of the northern kingdom and forced the rest of the Israelites into exile. And so Isaiah lived his entire life under the, uh, th- the uh, threat of the Assyrians and under their brutality. But the Assyrians would give way to another world power, the Babylonian Empire, who would be a threat in their own right. The Babylonians would take the southern kingdom of Judah into exile in 586 B.C. Isaiah also predicted this. In fact, the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, it's all about the Assyrian threat. Chapters 40 through 55 are about the coming Babylonian exile. And then chapters 56 through 66 are for God's people in all ages. Our passage this morning lands right toward the end of the prophecies about the looming Babylonian exile for Judah. It's a passage about the Lord's servant. There are four songs between Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 53 about the Lord's servant. Four songs about a coming Messiah who would bring hope and would bring peace to a suffering and exiled people. And the same Messiah offers us hope and peace this morning in the Christmas story. So we're going to focus on verse Five, but I'm going to read all of the chapter uh, for context. So Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This morning we're focused on Advent peace. That's our theme for the week. And I want us to see that for the believer, Christmas is a story that leads to the peace that we long for. And so there's three things I want us to see from Isaiah 53 verse 5 about Christmas. Here's number one. Christmas is a story of redemption. If you need a second chance this morning, Christmas is the story for you. It is a story of redemption. In verse 5, Isaiah says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. What we see there in verse 5 is that the Messiah was made to be a substitute for us, a substitute for the people of God. In the Messiah, we find a personal servant who takes our place. Judah wasn't under the threat of Babylonian exile because the Babylonians were a supernatural power and God just did not have the strength to hold them off from capturing his people. It had nothing to do with that. It might have looked that way on the surface, but the reality is that the Lord could have crushed the Babylonians at any point. Nations rise and fall at his command. They are dust on the scales to him. And so in Isaiah 40, here is what the prophet says. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And so it's not because Babylon was too strong. That's not why Judah is under this threat. They're under this threat because of their sin. Israel, the northern kingdom, they had been disciplined by the Lord with the tool of the Assyrian Empire. Judah, in the same way, is going to be disciplined with the tool of the Babylonian Empire. Now, a question they might have asked while they were in exile was, could we ever be forgiven of our heinous, rebellious, treasonous sin before God? Could God overlook their iniquity and call them His people again? How could He remain holy and and be a just judge and let them go free and forgive them and pardon them? Maybe you're asking some of the same questions this morning. Maybe this was a, a year for you where You feel like spiritually, morally, things just absolutely came undone. You feel like there uh, were disciplines you had spiritually that you have always practiced and, and you lost them. You haven't really been praying. You haven't really been reading your Bible. You know in your heart that you are far from the Lord, that you are not walking in fellowship with the Lord. And maybe you have wondered, could I ever be forgiven of my sin that I have committed before 
God. Or maybe you're not a believer at all this morning. You know that you don't have a relationship with Christ. You don't have a personal servant who has died as a substitute for you. And maybe you ask those same questions. How could I ever be forgiven of my sin? And if I was to be forgiven, how could God be just and forgive me? Shouldn't evil be punished? The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said this about sin. Man is guilty of a universal, total, sinful defilement spread over all faculties of soul and body, containing in it a privation or want of all good and an inclination to all evil. And this sin and the guilt that it brings has separated us from God. It has created a wide chasm between humanity and its creator. In Isaiah 59, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Maybe you've come here today and you feel like God's not answering my prayers, and you feel like he's listening. Well, the issue very well could be your sin, your iniquity. It's not that God cannot hear, it's not that he does not answer. But your sin has made you far from him. It's not that God cannot save. Your sins have hidden his face from you. We deserve no less than separation from God for our sinning. We deserve no less than hell for our sin. God has every right to keep us alienated from his holy presence for all of eternity. In fact, that would be justice. We have broken the eternal law of an eternal God, justice is a fitting, uh, or eternal punishment is a, a fitting just punishment for our sin. But this is where the Lord's servant, the promised Messiah of Isaiah 53 steps into the scene. Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions. And Isaiah says that he was crushed for our iniquities. And so what Isaiah is prophesying is that the Messiah is going to be a substitute for people like you and me, for sinners like you and me. He's a substitute. We deserve to suffer for our sins, but Christ is redeeming us by being pierced in our place. He is redeeming us by being crushed in our place. And if we are going to give a, a theological term uh, to this, a name to this. It's just, this is the glorious doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Jesus died as a substitute in our place to atone for our sin. Here's what Hebrews 9 says. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You can't be forgiven unless blood is shed. In the Old Testament, God provided the sacrificial system. And in His abundant grace, He placed His wrath on the sacrifice instead of the sinner. The priest would atone for the sin of the people with His offering. But the system could never pay for the sins of the people in full. It could never make full atonement. 
And so in the greatest display of love that the world has ever known, God sent Jesus to be the once and for all substitute for the sins of his people. And on Jesus the Savior is where the wrath of God toward his people for their sin ultimately fell. You know, on about the 20th day that our Savior was in his mother's womb, his little heart would have begun to pump fluid through his blood vessels. And those same blood vessels would one day be cut open. And he would pour that precious blood out for us, for our purification in our place. And that blood atones for the repugnant sin of God's children. He died in our place. He died for sin. This is substitutionary atonement. And without the sacrifice of Christ, we would still be trapped in our sins. We would be destined for hell. But praise God that Christmas is a story of redemption. Now, what does this atoning do for us? What does this redemption accomplish? Well, it closes that massive gap between you and God. The chasm that was created by your sin, that was created by your rebellion against the Lord, it's erased and we are brought back into fellowship, we're brought back into relationship with our Maker. A right relationship with God is really at the heart of every religion in the world. Everybody knows something's wrong and everybody is trying to come up with a way to fix it. Different religions might give different names to God, but they're all trying to fix what is broken. But here's the problem with every religion outside of the Christian gospel, is that they're all trying to do it with good works, they're all trying to do it with self-effort, they're all trying to do it through religious ritual, and yet none of those things can bring about justice for the sin that has been committed. If sin is to be forgiven, someone must pay for that sin. And this is why God put forth his son. So that the sin would be paid for and the relationship between God and man would be repaired, would be fixed. And so this morning we see Christmas is not just a story of redemption. Christmas is also a story of reconciliation. Understand this about the reconciliation that Jesus has produced in your life if you're a believer this morning. It's all God's work. You cannot raise your hand and say, well, I get to take credit for some of this. It's all God's work. Kent Hughes says, reconciliation is not something we do. It is something God has accomplished. The ministry of reconciliation is not telling people to make peace with God, but telling them that God has made peace with the world. And I'm not sure there's any Bible verse that helps us understand the reconciling work of the suffering servant as well as 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was made to be sin on the cross. He knew no sin. He was perfect. He was sinless. Isaiah 53 verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. If you really stop and consider 
the, the purity of Jesus, uh, it, it, it really is awe-inspiring, right? It, it kind of drops your jaw. If you really think about the fact that there was not a second, there was not a moment of his 33-year life where he knew sin. There was not a moment where he transgressed the, the law of the Lord. He never got angry without cause. I'll, I'll tell this story. I'll confess the story, okay? We're, we're on our, I, I'll go back to our Disney trip that we took a week ago. We're on our way on the magic shuttle. Let me tell you something about these magic shuttles. They're, they're not magic at all. It's a bus, and they give this name to it, okay? So we're on the magic shuttle. It's like 7 in the morning because we're trying to get there early to get to this roller coaster. And at this point, we're about five days deep into the Disney trip. Later on in this day, I would fall asleep standing up in line for Space Mountain. First time in my life, I fell asleep standing up. So that tells you where I was at. And there was a lady behind me, and she was goo goo gaga with her baby at 7 a.m., but I swear she had a microphone because it was just like, doo, 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 doo. I mean, it was that, just the whole bus could hear at 7 a.m. And um, man, you want to talk about getting angry in your heart without real cause? That was me, okay? I, I told Katie later on, I felt so convicted because I was just sitting there seething with every noise that she made. Jesus never did that, okay? Never. And I know, I know we laugh about that, but really think about the times you've gotten mad in traffic just this week. Just this week. He never had a moment where he felt wrath in his heart without a righteous cause for it. He never failed to be compassionate. How many times has, have we been called to compassion, but we're too busy? Or we're too selfish, or we're too focused on what we've got to do in the day. There was never a moment where compassion was called for where he put his own agenda over the agenda of the hurting, over the agenda of the glory of God. There was never a moment where he disobeyed the will of his Father. He never even sinned in his thought life. He never put a word wrong. And yet he became sin. And that doesn't mean that he lost his inward sinlessness. That doesn't mean he lost his outward sinlessness. When we say he became sin, we mean he became our substitute, our sacrifice. I'll go back to Kent Hughes one more time. He says, think back to the magnifying glass you played with as a child. If held under the sun's rays, it could start a fire. Remember how if you focus the white spot of its concentrated light on a leaf or a bug... It would begin to burn. Our sins were focused on Christ on the cross, and he suffered the fiery wrath of God. What that means is that on Judgment Day, I will not be treated by the Father um, as a sinner for that moment on that magic shuttle, okay? That moment where I was angry with this woman in my heart for no reason. I should be punished for that. But I won't be, because Jesus was punished for that in my place. He was punished for your unrighteous anger in traffic this week and every other sin you can think of that you have committed. Your chastisement was upon Him. My chastisement was upon Him. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. It's hard to imagine 
how it could be the will of the Lord to crush his son. But when you think about the purpose of Jesus' life, that he came to die for sin, then it makes sense. It was God's will to crush his son instead of crushing you. That is how much God loves you. That is how much God wants to be in relationship with you. His son bore the sins of many, as it says in verse 11. And here's what you get in return, okay? He gets your sin. Here is what you got in return. You get the righteousness of God, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. We become the righteousness of God. The darkness of our sinning was transferred to Christ at Calvary. The light of His righteousness is transferred to our souls. Our sins were credited to His bank account. His righteousness is credited to our bank account. This is the amazing gift that we receive by faith when we turn away from our sin and we trust in Christ for salvation we are declared to have the righteousness of Christ our legal standing before God becomes one of innocence instead of guilt because Christ has taken the punishment for us and if you are in Christ Romans 8 1 says there is now no condemnation for you you are reconciled to God you are back in relationship with him the way that you were designed to be in relationship with him. You're made right with God. This is what Christmas has gotten us. It is a story of redemption. It is a story of reconciliation. And what does this produce? What does his redeeming substitutionary sacrifice in our place, which has brought us reconciliation, what does it produce in our souls? This is our third point this morning. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of reconciliation. And number three, Christmas is a story of rest. Sully read this earlier. The angels appear to the shepherds in the field. They announce great joy for all people because Christ was born in Bethlehem. And here's what you find out after that birth announcement. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace. What is this peace that's being talked about? Is it, is it peace between man and man? Is it peace with, with our fellow human beings? Is it relational peace? Is it peace between nations? Is it inner peace? Is it peace with yourself? No, it's something much bigger and much better than peace with others or peace with yourself. The angel choir is singing about man having peace with God. Finally. You know when peace comes? Peace comes when wars end. That's when peace comes. And in Christ, the warfare between God and man has come to an end. A war that we started, by the way. We're enemies of God by nature. In Romans 5, verse 10, Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Praise God, we've been saved by His life. But before we were saved by His life, we were enemies. You were an enemy of God. You opposed Him with your sinful desires. You made war against Him by trying to dethrone Him and take control of your own life. But through the death of His Son, the Messiah, you are now reconciled. 
And here's what you have with God now. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. Peace with who? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war's over. Praise God. The war is over. And now you get shalom. That is the Hebrew word for peace. It means completeness. It means soundness. It means wholeness. We're talking about a transcendent rest that can only be found when your soul is made right with God through the blood of His Son. God made you to find peace in Him. And as St. Augustine said, you're not going to have true rest until you have that peace, until you have that rest in Him. Christmas is the story of God redeeming us and reconciling us to Himself so that He could give us true rest in our souls. You hear from this culture that we live in that there's all these things that are going to give you rest. All these things are going to give you peace. That you just need to indulge yourself or you need to pick up this habit and you need to go to the gym this many times. And Some of those things may be prudent. None of the things that this culture says are going to bring you rest and bring you peace really are going to do the job. The only thing that's going to do the job is knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Chastisement was placed upon Christ for our sin. We've been given peace with God and by God. And that's what it was always about. This is what the angel of the Lord told Joseph in a dream, right? She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He didn't need to quietly break off his betrothal to Mary. She hadn't committed adultery. God was at work. And the Lord had given her a son that was going to bring peace to the world by saving people from their iniquity. As Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Jesus was born to die for sinners and to bring glory to God by ending the war between God and man and giving the souls of God's people true, peaceful rest. And we sing this, right? Hark the herald angels sing, peace on earth and mercy mild. Let's say it together. God and sinners reconciled. That's the story of Christmas in two lines in one song, right? Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. We were separated from God. Christ died in our place. We are reconciled to God. We have the peace and the rest God made us for. We have rest in Him. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him, is what the old King James says. It pleased the Lord to crush Him, actually, is what the King James says. Because God knew this was the only way that sin could be paid for. He knew this was the only way His people could be forgiven. It was the only way for God and man to be reconciled and for God to be pleased with us again. As we talk about Christmas redemption and we talk about reconciliation and we talk about rest, the highlight for me is that God wants to be pleased with us. God wants to take pleasure in your life. 
He wants you to glorify Him and to take pleasure from that glory. And that is why He sent His Son, Jesus. Did He send Him in love? Absolutely. It's because He loves you that He wants you to glorify Him and that He wants to take pleasure in your life. And so He sent Jesus to make a way for us to know Him again so that He could take pleasure in us again and that we could have the absolute rest that comes from knowing God wants to be pleased with us and is pleased with us because we are in Christ. And that is the greatest gift we could ever receive. I'll tell you my favorite thing about Christmas Day it's getting to watch people I love open presents that I bought from them, okay? Um, have you ever seen that meme of the guy? You know, you guys, everybody know what a meme is at this point? Maybe, I don't know, okay? My children have a totally different definition of that word than me, by the way. Like, anything that's on the internet that's funny is called a meme to them. A meme to me is a picture with words on it, but regardless. There's a meme of the guy, and he's got, like, a board, and he's, like, the conspiracy theory guy, you know? I think it's from a show, and there's all these papers, and he's got all these strings going from paper to paper, right? And he's trying to tell you about some crazy conspiracy theory. That's me getting my Christmas gifts together, all right? Uh, Katie and I do a spreadsheet. I'm trying to think of the perfect gift for each person. And so well, there's some surprises under the tree over there that I'm excited to give out on Christmas morning. That's Christmas for me, watching people I love lose their minds over what I've given them. And there is just nothing that I could give to any of them or that you could give to any of your loved ones that compares to even a fraction of the gift that God has given us in the Christmas story peace and rest with him through his redeeming and reconciling son. There's just nothing better than that and there's nothing that you need more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of redemption and reconciliation and rest. We thank you for the story of Christmas. Lord, I, I give you praise that you in your sovereign plan from the foundations of the world, saw to it that your Son would be the one to come, that you would come in the flesh, and that you would undo this mess that we have made of our lives, that you would give us second chances and third chances and 70th chances and 1500th chances, chance upon chance with grace upon grace, that you have made a way for us to know you. And that when we sin, we can repent of it and we can confess it to you and you are faithful and just to forgive us on the basis of the fact that that little boy born in Bethlehem grew up to the greatest man this world has ever known and he died a death he did not deserve so that our souls could have peace. It is truly a wondrous mystery and Lord, I pray that we're in love with you. I pray that this Christmas, we would not just go through the motions and the rituals and the traditions, but we would look at the person in the center of it all. We would look at the Redeemer. We would look at the Reconciler. We would look at the Rest Bringer. And that we would be in love with him. That we would love you, Jesus. That we would pray to you and that we would read about you and we would read what you have to say in your word and we would tell others about you and we would sing to you. And we would think about you and that your truth would fill our hearts and our minds and chase away all the lies that we're told in the world 
on a daily basis and that we would truly love you and have that rest and that peace we've talked about this morning. Again, there's nothing better and there's nothing we need more. And so draw us to yourself, Jesus. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.